Brooklyn. Welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan. And with us today is a special guest, Casey Chalmer. Um, Casey is the author of the debut poetry collection, uh, We Call Them Beautiful, by Diode Editions, and the chapbook, The Hasp Tongue, Dancing Girl Press, 2014. She's the founder of the collaborative audio project Queens Bound and is the assistant director of communications at NYU Gal- Gallatin. Uh, she lives in Jackson Heights, Queens with her son. Welcome, Casey. Hi. Thanks okay. for having me. Thank you. Thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about we call them beautiful and uh, how it was conceived or how you started the book and then into the publication process. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great. Um, yeah, the, uh, we call them beautiful. Is my first book, but it's kind of um, <laughs> it's a, a whole series of other books that have been kind of folded in. So um, it's the product of about ten years of writing and editing and revising. So uh, some of the core poems in the collection were part of my MFA thesis at the University of Michigan, and then over the years, um, as I've been sending it out. Um, to contests and for publication um, opportunities, I've been editing and culling and revising it. Mm. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of a normal process for poetry where you have to win a contest, generally speaking, in order to get your book published. And over the course of submitting and, um, and, uh, and not getting it published, you keep uh, looking at it again and, and trying to figure out where it's working and where it's not working. And, uh, yeah. And so I, I spent a lot of time kind of what I used to say is I would take the weaker poems and feed them to the stronger poems. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so it was a long process. And then also, um, uh, the book was a finalist, um, over two dozen times. Oh yeah. So it really, I kept sending it out and it kept almost making it, but not getting published. So I kept trying to make it a stronger and stronger book. And what what do you say the themes of the book? Like what what was some of the major concerns or things that you, the recurring obsessions would you say? Oh, recurring yeah. obsessions or recurring things that come up for you? Yeah, I mean there are the things that I find myself returning to. Yeah. So um so I'm interested in um in a poem I'm trying to find some kind of find a way to look at or investigate a question or to kind of um get my arms around an emotional uh, truth or that I feel like I would like to find a way to put down on the page. So those are kind of like the approaches. And then I, I've found myself, you know, um, I come from a family of artists. So uh, thinking about art and um, the reception of, of work and also like works that have stuck with me. Um, there's always, there's often uh, water themes um, and there's a feminine, a definite feminist, uh, perspective in the book where I'm trying to tell the stories, uh, my stories and the stories of women I know and love um, as a way of also kind of reaffirming or presenting um, the the truth of, of their experience and my experience. Yeah. So would you say that um, some of the things that the recurring obsessions would be like, uh, like find, finding that universal truth or connecting your truth with universal truths or how would you put that or how would you yeah. like connecting it with like how do, what do you think of the reader for the reader's perspective what do you hope to them to uh take away from a poem when you write it do you connect a lot with the reader or your imagined reader or 
Yeah, I mean, yeah. I think about, I think when I, I try not to go into a poem thinking I want to do this thing or that yeah. I know what I'm doing necessarily, more to investigate a question. And I, I mean, I don't know, are there universal truths? I, I, I that's a, that's probably a good larger question to yeah. ask. But, um, but I'm trying to at least present to the reader, uh, in a poem, some kind of negotiation of what I understand to be the case or what I've discovered in the course of writing a poem. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. So now I understand uh, there was a big story around the publication and such. And some now, yeah. do you want to talk a little bit about kind of just some navigating, at least for our, our writers out there, to know some of the, the dangers or some of the things that could happen when, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I think I think what happens generally, and this is a larger problem of being an artist of any stripe in America, is that you know you're you're trying to get your work out. You don't have a lot of support, and you have to go through this. In the case of poetry, this very kind of narrow um, passage to get pu- published, which yeah. is you submit to contests, or there are a few public publishers that will accept um, will accept uh, submissions. So you have this very narrow path to getting published. And and also your work is not necessarily value valued in the larger culture the way that, you know, something that makes money does. So people get kind of uh, desperate to get their work out. Understandably, you want to your writing to be read and to communicate something to your readers. So um, it can make people feel like they have to accept any kind of um, any kind of offer that's made to them in the case of the. Um, the, the book was under contract after being a finalist for two contests for a publisher in the UK. And this publisher, it turns out, I found out after the fact, has a reputation for being um, predatory and quite difficult and also super litigious, which is a different um, part of the conversation. But um, uh, and I think in my case, I was so tired of sending it out and not not having it see the light of day. And I didn't know how to release it into the world or to let go of it and just go on write other stuff. So I kind of accepted this offer that I had some misgivings about mm. from this publisher because I was desperate to get into the world, which is, yeah. you know, and to feel legitimate by publication, you know, which is a whole other, you know, artistic <laughs> problem. But yeah. um, so, so because I felt, uh, you know, just very tired of going through this process of submitting to contests and, getting close and not uh, getting there uh, that I, when I was offered this other opportunity, I was like, I'm just going to take it, uh, you know, and then it turned into a very difficult um, situation because this publisher, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, is, is kind of notorious in publishing. It turns out or it yeah. became notorious um, as well. So uh, the kind of good thing about that process of trying to extricate myself from that publisher was that I connected with poets in the UK and uh, and in the US, all of whom were under contract, some of whom were published by or about to be published by. And we worked collectively to get those of us who were under contract um, and these very problematic contracts to extricate ourselves from them using social media and using our collective um, power. And it was very helpful for me to see that if we worked in, uh, you know, in coordinated ways yeah. collectively that we could potentially help each other. Yeah. It seems so, like we're building, a, you're building or you build, end up building a sense of community among poets and creating networks and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It's very important. I think that, you know, at the very least, you know, the silver cloud lining or whatever, the mm-hmm. silver lining in the cloud mm-hmm. was that, you know, you're able to connect more with the writers and, and feel that sense of community and such. 
And um, and also with your Queensbound project, <laughs> I understand you're building a sense of community within Queens. And if you tell a little bit, why don't we transition a little bit into that? Sure. A little bit of Queensbound, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the best things about that the other situation mm-hmm. with that publisher, the would-be publisher, was that not only did we all connect with each other, but we, most of us who needed to got out of our contracts, which oh, was dude, also good. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then and then because of that, some uh, conversation happened around the kind of things, the, the kind of uh, problems that face poets mm. in particular um, with certain kinds of publishers. Um, and Queensbound uh, is this uh, project that I conceived of to try to is essentially to try to make an informal map of the poets who are writing in Queens and writing about Queens. Um, so uh, I'm also a lover of maps and cartography yeah. and I'm a Mainer. So I, I like, you know, um, I have like a whole map culture in my, in my head <laughs> um, uh, thinking about like coastal maps and things like that. So I live in New York now and, uh, and have for some time and I'm going to continue to, for another uh, another long while, and I would like to feel more connected to the other um, writers in Queens. Uh, and so I was thinking, how can we connect this very loose um, network of people? Everybody knows somebody else, and so I was thinking, not only do I want to kind of have uh, that sense of connection of other poets, I also wanted to help showcase and develop uh, the literature of Queens work because we're always seen as kind of second or third. Well, mm. Manhattan, then Brooklyn, then yeah. Queens, then the Bronx and Staten Island. Like there's some kind of pecking order hierarchy yeah. and I love Queens. So um, I wanted to see if there's a way that we could celebrate it. So um, I approached 16 leading writers uh, in Queens, although there are many, many more, but I started with a small group to, co- to contribute poems about their neighborhoods and then I found a really talented young designer who worked with me at Gallatin, whose name is Kyle Richard, to, who loves subways and maps, uh, to redesign uh, a subway map that just has the Queen's subway lines. And then I worked with uh, another NYU Gallatin student, MA, former MA student, or not former, just graduated MA student, um, uh, Maham Khan, and she uh, provided technical help. And... Uh, what uh, the larger goal was to have this be an audio project. So uh, to kind of help people listen to poems and also help the poets think about how their poems sound. And, um, and so I had all the poets who contributed poems record the poems. Uh, Some of them we recorded in a professional studio in Jackson Heights with the, um, with the, uh, with the help of Ann Hepperman, who's a, who's a, uh, radio a known radio <laughs> um sound editor and a really excellent um editor and so we took those pieces and embedded them um on the pdf uh, at the station stops where the poems that to which the com- poems correspond oh, so cool. that's a little complicated um yeah. it sounds complicated it's not it's like a lovely map with embedded audio and yeah. what the hope is if we can when we secure enough funding that we can get a, a poem for every station stop in Queens. Mm. There are like more than 90 of them. Nice, so, nice. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it speaks to the, your interest in like uh, uh, connecting various disciplines. And you were talking a little bit on the pre-interview questions about, you know, like the interest in poetry to communicate with other disciplines and such. And like that's something that's interesting because like even in my own practice, I try to look up information or I try to investigate information about different disciplines mm-hmm. and then try to get inspired by that and try to fuel a mm-hmm. poem that kind of speaks to 
uh, some other some uh, esoteric knowledge or something that mm-hmm. people may not be familiar with and such. Do, is that something you do, or is it something you do in your own practice, like just kind of study and use that for? Uh, you were saying about interdisciplinary work, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm always interested. So I uh, I come from a family of artists, and so I've always been interested in visual art, and I'm interested in bringing visual art and poetry into better conversation. So not just drastic, descriptive poems of yeah. uh, that that are purely descriptive of works of art, but also that are looking at what the reverberations of the artwork are. What is the what is the takeaway? So over over the time of editing and sending out the book. I started thinking I don't want to continue to just write narrative poems and uh, about my particular story. And so I started thinking about um, if I look at art, you know, what are the pieces of art that have stuck with me and why and how, where do they live in my thinking and my feelings? And so I started writing about those. And I'm also I have a, a number of friends who are scientists and I'm I'm always interested in thinking about it's my it's my feeling that scientists and poets are talking about the world. Um, they're looking at the world with a sense of wonder and they're talking about it with different, in different ways. Yeah. So I do want to bring those conversations uh, clo- like closer together. So um, I'm interested in seeing what we can take from science and, um, and poetry and how they can speak to each other and how, how, Science can be contained or explored in poems. Yeah, it seems like there are ways of seeing, you know, mm-hmm. and that, uh, you know, with science, scientific knowledge, scientific progress and our understandings is definitely a framework that we can work within mm-hmm. in order to connect with these personal truths. I find for me, this poetry is like a more about connecting with the personal truth and embodied it, embodied truth. And then, you know, scientific understanding is just one like lens through which to look at these uh, really deeply personal ideas and such. Although, of course, there's many different, you know, practices and ways and which approaches and such. But uh, is that kind of how you uh, see it or kind of it's like a framework or that you're able to then apply to like or look a lens through which you're able to look at different incidents or different moments or, yeah? Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like scientists are trained to look at, at you know, trying to look things and describe them in this very objective and neutral yeah. way and poets are trained in almost exactly the opposite way yeah. but the the points of view and what we're looking at we can look at something sim- with a similar sense of attention and wonder and interest and so um i i'm thinking about doing some kind of interviews with uh scientists uh to see what their what their preoccupations are in science and why they're drawn to the things that they study and uh and then trying to take those conversations and turn them into poetry. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying about uh, how the scientist seems to want to disappear into the into the background of the of the the science. You know, wants for to, legitimacy. Yeah, sake. for legitimacy's sake. Yeah. yeah, and then even like when I was doing in college, I remember I was doing like anthropologists and such uh, anthropology and anthropology courses. The anthropologist though is very much present. I find mm-hmm. in the works that I've read. Oh, that's back in the day. Well, they like would the have to be right to in order present, to be in order legit. to be the observer, yeah. you know, the observer. But they have to show where they're yeah, coming where they're from. coming from. Yeah, exactly, mm-hmm. exactly. It's interesting different in different fields how yeah. different approaches can be applied and mm-hmm. and how um, you know poets can then apply different different versions of this and try to you know meddle with it and mm-hmm. you know play with <laughs> it and such and see what what comes out. Yeah. yeah. 
So um, what other like what other fields or what other things like what other thing catches your interest or like what other things are 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 you give an example? Why don't we why don't we read one of the oh, poems? Sure, sure. And then we can try to get an example of like mm-hmm. how some of this comes into play in one of the. Sure. Uh, I mean, I also um, let me see. I this has this uh, this is the title poem from the collection. Yeah. Um, which has a little Einstein in here, um, only because. Uh, yeah, well, I, I can talk about it after, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's called We Call Them Beautiful. We have decided to love trees. The living ones are corralled along the sidewalks in cities. The dying ones, once glorious, collapsed into dust from not being seen. Those in forests wave their hair and hands whenever the wind blows. When he runs the track, they are behind him and all around the park. Against the gray sky, they are like nerves pulled from the body, Waving, sucking air, sucking dirt. He starts clean but comes around the seventh time, sweating, soaking his shirt through, giving me a little wave for my whistle. A sliver of Einstein's brain blown up under the microscope shows all the branches of where his thoughts went, still waving. Around the track, the trees wave through the gray afternoon sky, like mute women trying to alert me to an emergency. Nice, nice. Thank you, thank you. Um, and that I mean the the Einstein line is just that I get I thought about that. I think I saw some TV show when I was in high school, and they'd uh, they they'd gone and taken slivers of Einstein's brain and uh, showed how developed this certain aspect of the brain was. And I just thought, well, it looks like trees. Yeah, <laughs> you know that they they had grown and thought and branched out, and so that that thought kind of just stayed with me. And I finally found a place to put it in a poem. So interesting. It's interesting how like little things like little nature shows or whatever, or, like little things you watch on the, on the side can send somehow feed into that ongoing thread of thought, you know, mm-hmm. that, that we all have, you know, that we have that po- as poets have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of that ongoing like kind of meditation or something that, you know, you watch something and they just get sucked into it, you mm-hmm. know, and then you end up using something for that, you know? Yeah. I think you have to pay yeah. attention to the things that keep your attention or that stay or that made an impression, or that stay, or that keep you keep returning to, yeah, yeah, yeah with unwi- unwillingly, unwittingly. And we, uh, well, I'll go to one of the um, uh, questions I had listed here. Um, you know, talking about uh, essential truths and how they, how you feel, or if you feel they, they kind of how these essential truths, uh, an essential truth, acts towards your empowerment, or acts mm-hmm. towards or empowers you, or makes you feel. Something that maybe is neglected by uh, mainstream society, uh-huh. if you will. That you know, so all these truths. Sometimes a lot of these things we hear over and over again, repeated. You know, mm-hmm. and sometimes we get numb to them, or maybe you feel it's underappreciated, or something. Mm-hmm. Some aspect of things that you feel like you live on a on a regular basis or a daily basis. Well, or- I mean, I think a lot about the fact that I think a lot about. I mean, I'm an American. I've lived in other countries for small periods of time, but I think a lot about. The fact that uh, we're sold this idea of the the individual above all else as a yeah. way of actually obstructing our ability to connect with other people and to have empathy and kindness, uh, you know, feelings of empathy and to be kind to other people because we're busy feeling uh, worried about ourselves, um, our achievements or lack of achievements, and we're always made to feel not enough, and that constant preoccupation with ourselves and our shortcomings is a real um 
it really inhibits the ability to think about other people. And it's a way of just keeping us um, on this little terrible hamster wheel of ourselves. Yeah. So I, I don't know if that's necessarily a universal truth question, but I think the, the idea that we go through life and if we, if you don't step back and think, well, what am I, what have I been spoon fed and what have I not investigated? Um, and what is that doing to me in terms of my connection to other people? Yeah. Um, I, I think about that a lot because I feel like, you know, in almost every instance, if you can shut down your own self critique or, or if you could shut down an instinct toward perfectionism, which is has inherent built in failure, um, then then you can actually pay attention to other people and connect with other people and and think about um, being appreciative and joyful. Yeah, I almost feel like, you know, they have this um, sense of isolation we have the sense of kind of fostering that sense of isolation in this in this in, the, in New York. And although there's lots, there's so many people is like in the city. I feel like, you know, the, as you're saying, society and the, the way in which we structure the society is very much into like isolation and individualism. And this is your journey and it's all on you. And, right. you know, kind of, and that therefore isolating kind of makes it more consumer based, you know, cause you yeah. have to go chasing after, yeah. you know, more paying more money to these companies that are not necessarily having, you know, the best interest of the community at heart. Mm-hmm. And then you have a lot of this kind of, uh, fostering of these kinds of dependencies, you know? <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I definitely see that. I definitely agree that this is something that I would, I'm mean, just imagining a society that is more community based is, mm-hmm. is, is something that we should be striving towards and, and trying to, you know, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, and yeah. part of the, so part of that Queensbound project was me saying, well, I'm going to be in Queens and, and I want to feel connected and I want to know who the other poets are and I want to know their work and I want to have that sense of connection and i also you know i love i live i live in jackson heights i love my neighborhood and i love my neighborhood because it is a connected place because people know each other and people pay attention to each other and in that way it's very different than other places i've lived in new york where i felt much more um alone and it's also because i've been there for longer and i have a um well not so small but a small small child reasonably small child <laughs> he's getting taller all the time um and so that naturally connects you to other parents in different parts of the community but like i have felt so um uh shaped and loved and uh and not alone in jackson heights because of that sense of community and i wanted to build that out for poets as well in in queens so i've been trying to do what i can to 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 kind of counter that Mm. Um, and some of it just has to do with staying in a place, being appreciative and being attentive to that place and the people in it. Yeah. And, uh, as far as like, uh, reading and such goes, like, what are you reading right now that, uh, anything you're reading right now that you want to shout out or anything that's coming up for you Yeah, yeah. or or maybe just influential books in your life and we can kind of weave together the two. Yeah. I mean, this, this summer, um, I did the, the book came out in April. Uh, so I did a whole a whole bunch of um, readings and uh, have a friend and collaborator who's a composer yeah. who, who did a song cycle of my poems and there was a performance. Oh, is the song inspired by? Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, he took he took the he took the poems and made them I into made songs, songs. Oh, nice. for uh, soprano, piano, and cello. Oh, so nice. there were uh, and we did uh, several events around that as well. His name's Herschel Garfine, mm. um, and he he did beautiful work uh, as did the soprano who sang the songs. Uh, and the cellist and the pianist. So um, there were all of which is to say there was a whole mess of things that happened in April where I was reading 
or attending performances and um and all summer I've just been reading nonfiction. Yeah. Like I just didn't I didn't have any bandwidth to be reading uh poetry really. I just wanted to read stories. So I read um several really excellent books. Um uh prop two of the two of the well I uh two of them that were real standouts was this book called No Visible Bruises, which is about domestic violence and the cost of domestic violence in America. Um, and uh, it looks really closely and very compellingly um, and frighteningly at uh, how guns uh, are uh, caught up in this, um, in in the dynamics of domestic violence. And it's a really powerful and uh, incredible book uh, looking at how those relationships uh, function and obviously are, are dysfunctional, but how they, how they, how they move. Uh, and, um, that book was very affecting to me in terms of thinking about violence in my family history, uh, and how pervasive it is in American society and, uh, and, and the real cost for women and children. Um, and I've, I've, I highly recommend that book. And the other book that I read, which I was late to the party to because No Visible Bruises just came out, um, I think also this spring. Uh, was Catherine Boo's um, Beyond the Beautiful Forevers, mm. which is um, a nonfiction account of uh, a Mumbai slum that's been raised that was out near the Mumbai airport. And I felt in terms like of narrative nonfiction, it read uh, like the most compelling fiction, but it was based on the lives of, of um, real people and um, the complicated lives that those people uh, lived in that, in that very marginal space. And, you know, the, full full throated lives that they had as well. So I felt like it was a very compassionate and thoughtful investigation. And, uh, and she did the interviewing over the course of three years, I think, and she, uh, she won the Pulitzer for it. So, yeah. um, so it's the writing was just so beautiful and so compassionate and so um, evocative. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just an incredible, incredible book. Yeah. Good, good. Yeah. Um, so like, I'm curious, like, yeah, cause this also makes me think of like, I recently just saw the movie, uh, Tiger's Not Afraid, oh, I don't which know is, uh, this is a Me- movie from Mexico. Just, I, I mm. think it just got released. Uh, but for some reason I looked it up, it said 2017, I think it might've been re-released or it might've been uh. released, uh, an IFC, uh, it's playing in, uh, in the IFC in West village. Um, I think this whole, for this month or something, maybe it might launch into other mm-hmm. cinemas then. But anyway, my point is, uh, you know, it has to do with uh, like kind of like almost like a dark Peter Pan kind of a thing where these, <laughs> I mean, it has nothing to do with Peter Pan, but they're just the children. Yeah. And it's like, and they're very mad and there's magical realism mm-hmm. kind of involved into it. Mm-hmm. And it's in Mexico and these children are victimized by the drug wars. Uh-huh. So, you know, their, their families have all like have been killed by the drug cartel mm-hmm. in the beginning. And, um, they're kind of navigating, uh, the, the main female, uh, young girl um has like three wishes that she then you know over the course of the movie you Uh know has to use or effectively use in this course of her journey and it's just it's amazing i mean it's a fictional movie but it's amazing how they're able to weave together this magical realism with the brutal realism of 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 the idea of you know the of being victimized and Mm -hmm. and using this um this motif as being like a way into their character lot characters ideas and such. Yeah. yeah. So it's very interesting and very well acted, you know, mm-hmm. these young actors, uh, you know, were able to do such a, such a great job at, mm. 
uh, you know, the emotional complexity involved. You yeah. Know? yeah. Yeah. So I definitely recommend to our listeners and you as well. To, it's called yeah. the name again. Uh, Tiger's Not Afraid. Tiger's Not Afraid. <laughs> Tigers Are Not Afraid. Yeah. So it's a, it's a Spanish movie, but Mexican, but, um, but it, was, it, was, it had subtitles. Uh-huh. So. Yeah. I mean, I know a little bit of Spanish, but uh-huh. I was able, not enough to follow, not enough to follow along. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. So why don't we listen to the poem? Uh, okay. And then we can uh, talk a little bit more. Okay. So, so you can select another one, yeah? Uh, sure. Uh, I can set up, yeah. Here, end of summer, we'll think about all the sharks. So, uh, Or I can read a Queensbound poem. Yeah. Well, uh, the end of, yeah, sharks. Yeah, sharks, <laughs> sharks, yeah. Before, yeah, sharks, sharks yeah. before trains. Yeah. Okay. So Jaws, 1975. Before Jaws, I only cared about the jellyfish on the waves in loose clusters humming with danger. I didn't close my eyes then, never. I did the flips and watched everything upside down and dizzy whirl over my bent knees. Even now, swimming with him, I stay close to the shore. I wade up to my chest and stop. I feel everything swim between my legs, the water cooler here, warmer there. Is it better to tread water or to float? I turn my body up like one of the jellyfish, collect the sun. He always wants to go farther, so I watch as his arms move in furious little triangles toward Europe. When I tread water, I picture how the shark would see me, the legs waving, hello, pulled into the dark theater, where the man's head floats across the screen as fear shoots life into my nerves, up and down, and he swims back to me, kisses my mouth, and presses hard against me. There's salt in our kiss. How do we look from below? Thank you, thank you. Oh, sure. Good, good. So, yeah, so it's amazing how these movies like Jaws and all that can have such a lasting impact on, yeah. a, on, a, on, a, uh, on, on the listener and the, on the viewer and such and change. And all these works of art can totally cha- shift or mm-hmm. change our point of perspective about yeah. certain things and such and about certain uh, Communal experiences, communal experiences like yeah. this that Psycho did with the shower or something like that. Yeah. You know, like, yes. I don't know. Yeah. Don't shower alone. Yeah. Wait a minute. <laughs> yeah, the, I, I grew up in New London, Connecticut, and I saw Jaws when I was really little. Yeah. And wow. Yeah, no. And also in Maine, so which is, you know, there are not as many sharks in Maine, but I was very afraid of the water for a long time. Yeah. Uh, or the ocean, not the water, the ocean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, so also we were talking a little bit about. Um, let's see if I can pull something else up. Uh, um, oh god, there's no you're talking alarm. Like my thing, like listens to me, and then uh, it'll say like something weird. Um, so yeah, which a lot of the themes of the show has to do with the personal being political, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I kind of use that as the tagline of the show and how. Uh, you know, speaking truth to power means, you know, finding that personal truth and letting it like empower you, but also understanding that, you know, how our personal choices and such fit into the larger context of communal community and, uh, and these kinds of things. So how does that resonate with you? What are some ways in which that resonates with you? And well, I always think of, um, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I always think of, well, I mean, I think of Adrian Rich, um, and you know, uh, and her work and she's always been, uh, a very important touchstone for me in poetry. Um, and she's somebody whose lines just are in my head. You know, I, I keep them as comforts and also uh, challenges. And 
So now we're in this, we spent, uh, some, some people spent a, a long time trying to, in, in contemporary poetry, trying to keep uh, politics out of it um, because it's always very time-bound and difficult. And if people are thinking about universality, they don't want to get bogged down in the news, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but, I, but I really feel like, you know, um, nothing exists without the, the real uh, personal is political is that nothing exists without context. Yeah. Right. So if you're composing poetry or you're thinking about poems, you're creating them in a context or you have the privilege of being able to create them because you have the time and space to create them or you make the time and space to create them in a context. And so nothing is happening without that larger context surrounding whatever you create. And so um, I think a lot about what it means to, um, you know, make art in this moment, which is so fraught and so painful uh, politically uh, for, for so many of us. And how can you make art that matters as much? I, I was talking with my writing group uh, recently and I, you know, I, I said, I keep, I'm trying, I'm working on this longer poem um, and I like a lot of it, but I keep coming back to the fact that I feel <laughs> it's just disgusting and shocking that there are children in cages on the border and that, mm. like, and um, you know, all my polit AOC is my rep, you know, like uh, my politicians are doing what I, what I see that they can do to voice their, um, their discomfort and rage about the situation. And what can I do as a citizen? What can I do as an artist to contribute to making that stop? Um, but also to making poems that feel urgent and feel like they matter in this moment where there's real there. And there always is right. But no, yeah. but we're, where uh, the larger um, uh, conversation has opened up to an uh, awareness of the fact of this um, urgency. I mean, we still have the prison industrial complex, um, you know, go firing on all cylinders. So, um, so how can you make art that matters? How can you make art that helps to, to dismantle things that need to be dismantled? Yeah. Right? You know, white supremacy and, and also the, you know, the, the nature of the, the political, world right now. So I think about that a lot, like what, what poems are going to matter, what poems are going to contribute to in, in even in some small way to like pushing that, um, you know, to, to dismantling, to dismantling the things that need to be dismantled. I guess that's a better way to say. Yeah. It seems like uh, a lot of times when I hear defenses, I don't even know if these are real people giving legitimate defenses, but sometimes when I hear defenses of Trump and administration and this kind of far right movement, <laughs> They talk about it in terms of, well, I mean, you know, I'd rather have uh, someone with some kind of, you know, an ability to speak properly or some personality disorder rather than having the movement of socialism as though that's such a, <laughs> that, rather than the communist fear, communism and all this kind yeah. of thing and all these fears of, of, uh, of, 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 of you know, governments people, taking, taking right. over. Right. The same people who like their Medicaid. Yeah. Hate, yeah. But exactly. hate government uh, helping people. Yeah. And then, and yeah. then meanwhile, they're like, uh, you know, just like the contradictions are rife in that, yeah. in this kind of dictum. And, and, you know, I think the ultimately what we have to do is kind of present a vision of society that is not with, I don't know, like trying to, trying to present a truth or a vision of society that is both, um, you know, that people can, connect with outside of rhetoric or outside of, you know, kind of these party lines and then all, mm -hmm. oh, if I'm Republican, then you're Democrat. If you're Democrat, then, you know, you're, you're kind of on the spectrum of this uh, tribalism and stuff like that, that we want to be able to connect to human beings with a 
with a common compassion mm-hmm. that, you know, we can all agree that, you know, kids should be treated, you know, well. And, you think that would be you know, the bare minimum. Uh, bare but bare what, minimum, what's yeah. being revealed is yeah. what we what many of us uh, already knew, which is that, so, you know, some percentage of America is just hardcore diehard racist. Yeah, like, that's yeah. it. That's it. And that, then we yeah. know that to be true, unfortunately. And that is being proven here or people like their tax cuts enough that racism is yeah. the price of it. And they're fine with that. So, yeah. so the question, so the, the kind of tricky thing for me is like, um, yeah, how do we connect and how do we talk to one another? But also just knowing that some people are never going to listen. Yeah. They're never going to hear that they, they don't, racists don't think they're racist. Yeah. Right. And it's like one of the defining, you know, aspects of being a racist is you don't necessarily think you are. Yeah. Um, because you're not willing to look at yourself in that way. And so, so the question is like, Yes, we want to connect, but also there are some people that we can't actually expend our energy on because yeah. um, because the connection isn't possible because they're shut down. And yeah. then for those of us who do want to ne- connect either across party lines, which frankly would be wonderful in this hyper-partisan moment, um, but also I can see it feels really impossible in some ways. Um, but for the for the rest of us who actually are appalled, this is an opportunity to say, what do we really value? And yeah. what, what are we willing to do to advance those values in the world? And so in this moment, if you're asking yourself, anyone who's not having that kind of reckoning, um, you know, is, is somebody that you probably can't talk to. I think yeah. we all have to right now articulate, like, what's the kind of America, not that we thought we had, but that we, that we want to have. And, and, and if we want to have it, how can we work together to make it? And what kind of conversations do we need to have with ourselves and our families and also in our communities and and with our representatives in order to make that possible? So I feel like this is this ter- this is a terrible, awful moment that I wish we never had to go through mm. um, and as a country. But it's also nothing new. Right. So it's as everyone will say, this has always been the case, but it's just being put out there in these very stark terms. And because it is putting put out there in this way. We have to have a reckoning with it. So it is, we're in a reckoning moment and it really could go either way. Like we can see that there's a real tolerance for the darkness, the racism, the the homophobia, the sexism, the xenophobia, every, ism, yeah. you know, all, all that that side of things. And, the, and there is also a rearticulation of what we believe. Like we can't take for granted those things. Yeah. Yeah, so, it's so difficult sometimes to know like whether or not these kind of, Approaches are based on, I have to follow, you know, kind of what the party, you know, is saying or something Mm -hmm. like that. Oh, you know, I have to take this along with, you know, I'm going to get my tax cut. I'm going to get my fiscal responsibility or whatever it is, Mm -hmm. you know, that I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm willing to sacrifice all this kind of thing. But, you know, being able to see that this is not, is not even consistent with the narrative that Mm -hmm. they're presenting and using some kind of logical defense, but that doesn't seem to be. The an effective, issue. <laughs> an issue or the effective yeah. approach rather, you know, it seems like, um, you know, short of some kind of, you know, uh, ac- direct action, which is a lot of people have been taking, you know, marches and, and, right. and things like that, uh, how we can get these voices and such more amplified and more. In, and, and a lot of these politicians are now, we understand, to be kind of making a lot of profit from, Absolutely. you know, from all these uh, things and such. and. They're personally got like, uh, you know, all these uh, campaign finance has to be enacted, all these different things, all these different moving puzzles, acts, mm-hmm. parts of the puzzle and how the money kind of su- keeps the keeps the beast going, as it yeah. were, 
Yeah. Well, I mean, when the Citizens United decision came, yeah. this is everything that's happening now is in the wake of that. Yeah. Really. Like, you know, free flowing, unrestricted ways of yeah. giving. Um, and who, and who, and whose interest is, is it in order yeah. to keep this, these kind of power structures in place? Yeah. yeah. It's depressing. Yeah. <laughs> it's so depressing. Yeah. And, and at the same time, it can be very affirming. I mean, we, we are in a depressing time, but I feel like people are talking about things that they were uncomfortable uh, talking about before in much more open ways. People are looking and thinking, you know, I don't want to live in a country that puts that that puts families, that puts uh, children, that puts people who are seeking asylum yeah. uh, in in these in these, you know, lawless, dangerous spaces. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I mean, and that's just one, obviously one extreme example of all the things that are going on. I mean, there's, you know, but that's the one that I personally keep returning to as a parent, thinking about what that looks like um, as a, you know, as a mother and, uh, and also like, you know, the things that those families, those kids are, had to come to just to get here. Like it's so, so appalling. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, <laughs> why don't we, why don't we uh, try to select one more poem? Sure. And then uh, they'll kind of uh, maybe sp- thinking about reflecting on the different aspects. Sure. Um, I've got, uh, let's see, I, I think I'll do a Queensbound poem once I find it. Uh, this one is... Uh, called Off the Roozy. Um, there's some debate about Roosevelt Avenue and how you pronounce it, but um, uh, I'd like to call it the Roozy, uh, <laughs> personally. Yeah. Um, and this poem is um, based on uh, Frank O'Hara's poem, uh, The Day Lady Died, about um, Billie Holiday, and not based on it in terms of trying to replicate it, but I was stuck, um, and I wanted to try to look at the architecture of the poem and see what I could learn from how he built that poem. Um, so it's uh, it's a nod to Frankie <laughs> and um, and to Jackson Heights, uh, uh, Roosevelt Avenue. For those who are not familiar, is one of the main thoroughfares that um, in Queens, um, and the seven train runs above it. So uh, off the Roozy after O'Hara, I get off the seven and head home past Chase and the Jackson Heights Penguin. That last week, someone dressed as a bunny. And I'm thinking of Frankie's I do this, I do that poems. And my phone is dead again, and I can't afford to replace it. All I want to hear is Spoon singing, Got no regard for the things that you don't understand. But maybe, as Lorna said, it's a gift. And there's a poem across the street waving, Yoo-hoo, over here, and trying really hard to get my attention. I get into 37th, near what's left of the Brunson building after the fire on Easter Monday, and I head past the Met, not that one, which they renamed Food Town, but which Honor and Joe and I always called the Met, not that one. And then I left onto 77th and passed our coffee shop, where Afsal stands outside talking, but for once does not say hello, even though he looks straight at me. And it's fine. I walk past the Berkeley and over 35th Ave, and I guess I'm home, considering my keys have opened the door even before I realized I had them in my hand. And everything is where I left it, even in the bedroom, where I keep waking alone quite suddenly to find, yes, I left you. You've never even been here. Thank you, thank you. Sure, that's a, also like a time-bound poem from a couple of years ago. Um, so interested in like seeing like uh, there was a, a fire that happened at the Brunson Building in Jackson Heights on Easter Monday. No one was around, and it may have been a little bit of a suspicious fire. 
Um, so it's kind of a spring poem <laughs> um, uh, yeah. with lots of Jackson Heights references for the locals. Yeah, good, good. And it seems like, um, you know, uh, when we really bound, you know, even with poetry that is very much bound in the civic location, we're able to open it up into like, you know, something that people can understand and like community feel and, mm-hmm. you know, and people even from off in the area can kind of understand it as being like, you know, dealing with kind of the, the snapshots of a, of a journey home, I guess. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And loss and yeah. And loss yeah, and yeah, yeah. Yeah. And kind of how these thoughts are kind of like connected to these various thoughts that are connected to these like journey home, you know? Yeah. 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 Thank you. Thank sure. you. Sure. So, um, yeah. So now as we start to wind down, we have about 10 more minutes or so. Um, so talking a little bit about, um, kind of like watershed moments in your own process and like, and how, and what lessons you've learned over the years, like how you've in your own evolution and Mm -hmm. things like that. If you want to pick one like watershed and like, and what kind of like lessons you've learned from that. And, um, I mean, there, there there've been, uh, I, I went to grad school and, uh, and I went with a lot of very talented writers and, the kind of rule of thumb is it usually takes about 10 years and it was about, it was a little longer than 10 now um, for you to get some traction with your work. And in the interim, yeah. you know, if you're an artist of any kind in America and unless you come from means, you have to, uh, you know, find other gainful employment to support yourself in your life. Yeah. Um. So, so the past while, I don't know if there's been a watershed moment aside from, you know, finally uh, getting the book into the world, which feels like a real achievement um, because in part, because it was so difficult to do. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily normally the case. I just happened to have a, like a kind of bridesmaid kind of uh, curse, I guess, where yeah. I was always a bridesmaid. Um, uh, but uh, some of it has just been nothing, nothing, no big great moment so much as kind of having to consistently recommit myself to my work in, in the context of, you know, um, of, of finding work and, and motherhood. I also um, got divorced a few years ago um, with a small child. And that was a very difficult and painful experience and sometimes continues to be, but uh, also like, uh, which speaks back to the conversation we're having about politics, this incredibly difficult moment has made, has been helpful for me in ways that were very surprising the way that divorce can do or any kind of like, um, you know, difficult and formative uh, life experience can do where I had to think about what matters, um, what, uh, what's most important and also, um, and also what I need to have in my life. So um, that's always a kind of something that people don't talk about, about divorce in that um, you can find a whole, there's a whole lot of gifts in in there um, that are not evident because there's so much pain to go through, um, especially if you have a small child. It's not like you can walk away from a relationship. You have to continue to um, find ways to negotiate uh, with somebody that you are no longer with and to share your child with that or child or children with that other person uh, with whom they have, you know, obviously the right to have a healthy and good relationship with. So, um, so, 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 I mean, I've had lots of life events, but not necessarily like a, uh, um, an artistic watershed moment. It's Mm. been kind of just the more quotidian, like, you know, returning to and reaffirming, 
um, the fact that I care about my writing and I want it to work and I'm going to do what it takes to make it happen. And also thinking about the kind of life I need to build for myself and my son in order to make, uh, to have it be functional and to make space to make art and, um, and, uh, to make it a creative, uh, space. I don't know if that really answers your question. Yeah. (laughs) I think definitely it's like, um, you know, when you think about kind of our creative process and how the evolution and how our our psychologies and such evolve and these guys, sometimes it can be a gradual, you know, (laughs) just, you know, gradual reaffirming, I think is the major thing. Yeah. It's not, it's not a glamorous, there has, there's been no glamorous moment (laughs) about it. It's, it's really just like the more, you know, tedious, but necessary, like, finding the time, making the time and, and deciding that the time that you devote to your art matters, Yeah, which is, you know, you don't get rewarded uh, very much in this culture for that. Um, Other, other cultures. I was just talking to a friend of mine yesterday about this. Um, You know, there's, there's, there's money, uh, there's grants, there's support, there's governmental support, institutional support for artists to, you know, explore and make. And we just have a lot less of that here. And I don't think Mm -hmm. American artists, even necessarily know unless they have friends in Europe who are getting lots of money for readings yeah. or for grants and other support that, and it's a little bit painful to realize how, how we are just kind of going it on our own and, and out of passion and drivenness. And, you know, for some people, if you have um, financial means and other, other means to help buoy you, that's good. And if you don't, then you're just kind of like toughing, you know, yeah. white knuckling it until you, until yeah. you, until you, um, until you make it, if you make it or just to make the space to make things. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So I'll do a quick, couple of quick announcements sure. as we start to wind down. Uh, you're listening to Radio for Brooklyn. Radio for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Uh, all, um, whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, and free expression. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. So to help support our mission, we invite you to make a one-time donation or monthly pledge at radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. You can also go to radioforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power for, to sponsor the truth to power show. Every cent helps us continue to stay on air. So please support independent community media by pledging whatever you can afford. All contributions are tax deductible to the folks and to law. Again, that's radioforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Uh, Radio for Brooklyn. Uh, would like you to know about the RFB Teen Squad, um, our six-week after-school program for local teens to learn media literacy through media making using hands-on approach guide by local professionals. If you'd be interested in participating or doing to this program, please go to rufferbrooklyn.org slash afterschool. And once again, all donations are tax deductible. If you're listening on your computer, you can uh, Tune in on your iPhone or Android by going to their respective Play Stores. Um, sign up for our newsletter at radioforbrooklyn.org slash newsletter. Uh, keeping up with new programming, upcoming RP events, ticket giveaways, etc. Um, so also, in case you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I can, uh, I'd love to try to try my hand at a podcast. As you may already know, one of the few ways Radio for Brooklyn is able to generate revenue Keep our station on air is by offering affordable podcast recording services to people in the community. If you're thinking about starting a new podcast, just want to get yours um, out of the kitchen into professional studio where it belongs. RFP offers, offers a low hourly rate, which is technician. So all you need to do is show up and record. A special thanks to our live listeners. We're offering an amazing discount through September 1st. Just use the coupon code TTP 
when scheduling, and you'll get 20% off the cost of your first recording with us. Just go to RadioFrooklyn.org slash podcast studio. Enter your coupon code TCP to get your discount. Uh, thank you. Um, it's a super nice studio. Yeah, super I'm here to test- testify about yeah, that. Yeah, and we also have a second <laughs> studio, actually. They have two studios. I think uh, most of the podcast recording happens here, but there's no studio. I think some limited amount of uh, uh, podcast studios happen. Podcast recordings happen. Um, so, yeah, so any closing thoughts about uh, you want to direct people to your website or oh, sure. your Instagram or anything? Yeah, oh, sure. Um, I have a website for my my work, which is www.kctromer, letter K, letter C, T-R-O-M-M-E-R.com. And then I have a website for Queensbound if you're interested in the project, which is www.queensbound, all one word, Dot com and uh there's a there is a i have a a a playlist for we call them beautiful since you like radio yeah um on spotify it's um wctb playlist uh i think it's public so it should be findable and uh the book is available from diode editions uh they ship free anywhere i believe anywhere in the world actually uh, for 18 bucks and diode is D I O D E, but it's also uh, linked through my website. Um, my Twitter is, uh, at Casey Tromer and I have a, I also have a Twitter for Queensbound and for, we call them beautiful, which are findable, I think without me going through all that <laughs> adding. Oh, great, great, great. So, um, also the truth of power show airs every Monday at 8 a.m. Uh, rebroadcast on Thursday at 9 a.m. So in case you're interested in checking out our past, uh, whatever, 80-something episodes, uh, please check out our archives at readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power, where we should have um, the archives of the previous episodes. And then uh, also um, you can check more information about me and my writing at vjrnathan.com. I'm also kind of stalling a little bit because I you had a song uh, "Millionaire" by Town the Get Down. That's about three minutes, so it's a great uh, song. It's three. It's a three minute <laughs> song though, so we'll have to uh, wait till fifty seven to okay. to start playing it. Can so, you wait, radio yeah. listeners? Can you wait? <laughs> yeah. So tell us also a little bit more about the song. And this this is one of the songs on the playlist. Uh, it's on the playlist. Yeah, yeah. I, I love. Ooh, I love. I love her work. Um, I don't know if uh, if people know her uh, too well. Um, uh, but that song, I think, uh, I think that song, uh, one of the lines in that song is, uh, yeah, shatter what you will not carry, break what you won't, what you can't bear. Uh, just like yeah. that sentiment. Um, yeah. Shatter yeah. what you will not carry, break what you cannot bear. I think that's oh, right. Yeah. Um, and that sentiment, I mean, you know, just carry what you can and what you can't, you have to get rid of. Oh, I nice, love that nice. about it. Yeah, I mean, it's okay. also it's also a, a little bit of a sarcastic uh, uh, about a kind of it's a it's a it's a <laughs> a little bit it's a lo- it's a kind of scathing uh, daddy song. Uh, <laughs> so you know, in the tradition of Sylvia Plath. <laughs> thank, you, thank you. Good, good. So I guess we can start, and then uh, we'll start in about a minute, and then uh, <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yeah, so definitely uh, check us out next week. Uh, We'll be airing on uh, Labor Day, uh, according to the plan. So definitely check us out next week on uh, Ready for Brooklyn. Thanks so much.
Thank you for having me. Appreciate Thank it. You. Oh, I don't hear it. Is it playing? Uh, hang on. There we go. Do you want to talk? Yeah. So <laughs> uh, you can come up whatever is coming to mind hang on, as I try to figure this out. Okay. Porto. There you go. There you go. Have a good day, Radio Land. There you go. Start again. All right. Good. It's now three minutes. Yeah. <laughs>